Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukie, senior editor and the host of Babbage. This week, The Economist will run a cover package on the various global approaches to autism. The cover story and leader explore what works best in terms of educating people with autism and why many countries have a poor record of getting autistic adults into the workplace. To look more closely at these themes, we first speak to Haley Cohen, the author of our Autism Briefing, and to Simon Baron-Cohen, who runs the Autism Research Center at Cambridge University. Later in the show, we'll switch gears, pun intended, to talk about mapping technology for driverless cars with our innovation editor, Paul Markley. First, autism. Let's start with you, Haley. What has changed in our understanding of autism and what are the implications? Some of the things that people might have noticed in recent decades is that the prevalence seems to have gone up in a staggering way. What we don't know is whether any of that increase is a real increase in incidence or just a reflection of our coming to understand autism better. And the fact that today we're much better at diagnosing it. So what are countries doing to deal with all of this? Countries are trying a lot of different techniques to to deal with the perceived increase in autism. But currently, we're all doing pretty badly when it comes to a very important task, which is catching autism early. Our brains are the most malleable between zero and two years of age. And this is when we learn a lot from our environments and the people around us. And a typically developing baby is going to attach and observe mainly their caretakers who they smile, they hug, they fight. They do a lot of different things, allowing that infant to learn a lot, whereas an autistic infant will normally attach to an inanimate object, a rubber ducky, a toy car, and there's really only so much you can learn from a toy car. So if it's so critical that we have early interventions, what are these sorts of interventions? Why do they work? What are we doing with the children? Well, what's so tricky about autism is that there isn't a one-size-fits-all response that works. So it's going to be different for each child. The most scientifically proven model is one called ABA therapy, which focuses on behavior and reinforcing good behavior positively and essentially ignoring more disruptive behavior. There are different iterations of this that have also had positive results in in studies of them. And by detecting it early and intervening, are we better at integrating these people with autism into society? The idea, and this is proven in a couple of studies, is that by intervening early, we can set 
children at a high risk of autism on a more typical path of development. And normally that means that they need less special education and other supports later on. And how do they do once they leave the the warm, comforting confines of school and family when they're out on their own in the world? That's when things get really tough because after high school or at a certain age, depending on which of those two things comes first, is when autistic individuals normally in most places in the world stop being entitled to supports and they actually have to lobby for supports. It gets very tricky because people who enjoyed vocational training or social training in secondary school are forced out into the world and immediately lose those. Thank you, Hallie. Thanks, Ken. We'll turn now to a discussion on how to integrate autistic adults into the workplace with Professor Simon Baron-Cohen, who joins us from his office in Cambridge. Thank you for being with us today, Simon. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me on your show. Professor Cohen, what are the challenges that autistic people face when they first get into the job market? So you've put your finger on a really key issue because the National Autistic Society recently conducted a survey and found that 90% of adults on the autism spectrum, which includes Asperger's syndrome, are unemployed. And that's not because they lack ability or lack skills that would be relevant to employment. There must be barriers to employment for people with this disability. So, So you could imagine that the barriers are at various different points along the pathway into employment. So it might be about how you present yourself, because that's a social skill, which could even be how you present your CV or how you fill in the job application, because a typical applicant will be thinking about what does the employer need to know and how can I present myself in my best light. But people with autism struggle to put themselves into somebody else's perspective, so they may not be thinking about the employer's perspective. But then you could also imagine even if they were fortunate enough to be shortlisted for an interview. Again, the standard job interview involves communication, involves eye contact, uh, and again, social skills. And these are precisely the areas of disability. So if a person is fortunate enough to get the job, what are some of the barriers or challenges in the workplace? This is the next kind of point on the path for someone with autism, that they've now got a job, which is great, but can they keep the job? And uh, how are they going to sort of navigate the workplace? And again, there should really be a responsibility on the employer to ask the person, what do you need? And the employee might not need anything that's particularly expensive. A small adjustment or a tweak to the workplace might make things much easier. Are there companies that have actually deliberately gone out to recruit people with autism as a way of being, say, extra competitive, because we know they have special skills that don't exist in the ordinary population. And if you engineer your workplace differently, you might be able to capitalize on reaching out to that community. I mean, I think, you know, there's a kind of dual agenda that companies can see that they want to just be socially responsible, making sure that they're not perpetuating exclusion or discrimination against people with disabilities. But in the case of autism, they may also be able to make the business case that people with autism might make better employees than typical people because they have fantastic attention to detail, they like to be very perfectionist, they like to stay on a single task until it's been completed comprehensively, so not cut corners, 
and they like structure and predictability. So if it's any task that involves a routine or a system, they might actually enjoy it rather than, uh, for example, a typical person losing concentration and wanting to go off and chat. You've spent your life examining the caverns of the mind. Why? What has compelled you forward? I started off as a teacher in a small unit for children with autism back in the early 80s, when autism wasn't really very well understood. It certainly wasn't a word that was familiar in the general population. Um, And I found it fascinating. You're absolutely right that it involves examining what you call the caverns of the human mind, uh, because children with autism are developing differently. You know, their brains are developing differently, their minds are developing differently, so that you might, for example, meet a child who has a fascination with mathematics but doesn't know how to hold a conversation. So what you see in a child like that is a disconnect between their intelligence in one domain, mathematics or uh, patterns, and their skills in another domain, for example, their social skills. And, you know, that immediately raises a puzzle. Why is it that in the typical child, social development and, say, cognitive or mathematical abilities seem to go hand in hand and progress very evenly? And in a child with autism, you might have this very uneven or um, spiky profile And, you know, what's giving rise to that? Is it for genetic reasons or is it to do with other factors that might be influencing brain development? And that puzzle has never really left me. So here I am 30 years later still fascinated by that puzzle and we've got many more answers because new technologies have come along over that time like brain scanning and genetics. But nevertheless, there are many questions still to be answered. We know that... Evidence is pointing in the direction that early intervention with people who are diagnosed as being autistic seems to yield very positive results. Do you believe that that's the case? Are you part of the group that argue that it is critical that we intervene as early as possible? I think it's a general principle in medicine that if you can intervene early, that's better than intervening late. And so there's no reason why we should sort of question whether that would also apply or shouldn't apply to autism too. The critical evidence, again, is probably still missing, you know, comparing the outcomes of intervening at different ages. Simon Baron-Cohen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Next, we'll turn to driverless cars. To get cars to drive themselves, they need to know where they are. And to know where they are, they need a map. Now, all drivers have needed a map. But driverless cars need a special map, one that's a little bit more accurate and can do different things. To find out more about this subject, I've invited Paul Markley, our innovation editor, to join me in the studio. Hello, Paul. Hello. Why is it that we can't use the traditional GPS systems to power our self-driving cars? They're not accurate enough. That's uh, the simple answer. Probably 50 meters, maybe a bit better, maybe often a lot worse. Um, If you drive into a big city, you know, um, I drove into Chicago once and uh, I almost had an accident because I was following the sat-nav instead of my own sense. And of course, if you're in a tunnel, you've got nothing at all. And once, you know, I was in Norfolk and um, the sat-nav told me to do something which was clearly stupid. And I spent about half an hour around getting lost. So my um, tom-tom now sits in a hedge somewhere in Norfolk. So 
saying at the next roundabout, please turn left. You threw it out of the car. I gave up on that point. Your physical <laughs> maps are much better. Anyway, the thing is, they aren't good enough. So you've got to build a much more detailed map for driverless cars. And this is what the car makers are in joint ventureships and Google and others are now doing with, with cars that look like self-driving cars that are right, running around, around streets in California and other countries. But they're not self-driving. They've got the cameras and the techniques to build these maps. So what kind of maps do you need and how do you build them? Well, what they're doing is with their cameras, they're taking hundreds of pictures, thousands of pictures, lots of what you call LIDAR points, which is, if you like, laser scanning using light which to bounce off objects from curbstones to trees to everything in the road, also radar. And you put all these sensor information together and you can build up a highly detailed three-dimensional picture of the area around you. And this extends sort of up in the air as well. And that allows the car to position itself, in some cases they think, to about one centimetre of accuracy on the road. A traditional sat-nav, um, you know, if it's just a few metres out, you're on the wrong side of the road. That's incredible. Well, of course, that would be the case. But one centimeter, that's extraordinary. Well, that's what you can do with um, laser scanning. I mean, light is a a, a very precise measurement. And um, of course, providing the uh, road scene doesn't change, then you're going to be very, very accurate. I mean, surveyors use these, um, if you like, laser uh, surveying equipment to do digital cartography already to incredible accuracies. As long as the road scene doesn't change. Now, we know that there is something called day and night. We also know there's something called winter and spring and snow that might leave its dust all over the uh, the cityscape and therefore change what the 3D map would show. How do you overcome those problems? Well, you're right there. I mean, as soon as you've got this really high-definition three-dimensional map that the self-driving car sets off to use, because it's snowed. So the curbstones you are measuring are covered. You can't see them. The road markings are covered. Probably the trees aren't in flower anymore or bloom or leaf or they've fallen down or there's been a storm. So all these little things are changing. So they're having to look at various ways that you can keep these maps up to date as possible. So obviously one idea is you can send the cars around again and gather up more data, but even that's not enough. So you have to dynamically update the maps with sensors on the vehicle so that the vehicle can itself work out, well, this is where I should be and compare it to the map and ignore any changes. Paul, I've got the solution. Why wouldn't you make every self-driving car not just a recipient of the map to know where it is, but a beacon that uploads new information to the centralized map depository. That's exactly what they're doing because the cars themselves will also be obtaining data and data is valuable, as you know, so there's different manufacturers and different producers in here. So there are issues of uh, hmm, who's getting the best data, who's got the most reliable maps. But yes, indeed, that's one way is that the cars will eventually update their digital maps themselves. And when do we think this technology is going to be ready so that we can get driverless cars onto the roads? Well, I think we'll start to see um, driverless features as we already are seeing driverless features emerging in cars, you know, from automatic uh, overtaking, lane control, auto braking, that's already here. And that will just increasingly progress until we get the ones that drive themselves out of the showroom. And this, this is over the next decade. It's not so much the technology, it's more the social acceptance and legislation and which cities are going to allow this and where it can be done. I think they're the bigger obstacles now. Certainly, it's not the technology. That's really interesting. But I want to press you on it. 
when will I go onto Amazon, buy a car, and the car delivers itself to my house? Well, I don't know, Ken, because I would never do that. I would just buy myself a damn good sports car with a manual gearbox and a good map. <laughs> That's great. Look, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. That's a pleasure. Before we conclude this week's episode, we'd like to read some of the social media posts that we've received about our previous episode last week. Last week, we had a cover story on Mark Zuckerberg, the co-founder and CEO of Facebook. On that social media platform, Facebook, Jeffrey Chan wrote, The geeks now inherit the earth. Nathan Johnson, however, felt that, quote, He's been controlling freedom of speech. Likewise, another poster said, Facebook is not communication but noise. It is a place to shout and to read how mass media manipulates. Of course, that user used Facebook to communicate that. And finally, Andre Shushkin said to us, Mark, do not create an empire, create a universe. If you have anything to say about this week's show, you can find us on Twitter at EconSciTech and on our Facebook page, The Economist. You can find stories of autism and driverless cars in our upcoming issue. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.